Today's episode will be in three sections, one being the Egyptian Book of the Dead. The other was an article brought to my attention by a Patreon member, thank you Twilight. And then the last will be Vampires in Ancient Egypt. Let's get started. What is the Egyptian Book of the Dead? Ancient Egyptians created a personal Book of the Dead, also known as a mortuary text, to assist people and prepare for the hereafter, and to guide them through the challenges that await them there. Osiris, which we'll be talking about a lot in today's episode. The God of the Dead, which was the subject of some spells in the Book of the Dead that were intended to ward him off. The spells, which took the shape of hymns to the gods, offered useful solutions to issues like how to survive in the afterlife. These funeral texts are divided into many groups, the earliest of which is the pyramid text of the Old Kingdom. On the royal pyramids of the 5th and 6th dynasties, the pyramid texts were painted in blue hieroglyphs. These burial texts, which were only meant for the pharaohs, have not yet been fully deciphered. The Book of the Dead was written to guide the dead through the afterlife. You see, when an Egyptian passed away, he did so in the same direction as the sun as it moved through the sky. A king joined his father, the sun, after he passed away. However, the journey was full of dangers from demons, who frequently took the form of a snake. The deceased was also transported across water by a ferryman who might have been malicious or deceptive. The prayers, charms, and hymns found in the Book of the Dead could assist the traveler in fending off demons and figuring out how to handle the demonic ferryman. The writings in the Egyptians about the West reveal their fear of death. It says, Deep and black is the dwelling place of the dwellers of the West. It has no door and no window. No light to brighten it, no north wind to refresh the heart, the sun does not rise therein. Each day they lie in darkness. Those who are in the west, they are set apart, and their existence is misery. One is loath to go and join them. The keeper of the book of the dead was guaranteed a peaceful passage to transcendence. And here is some of what the book says even further. Death is an illusion, and you are actually eternal. In the chapter, The History of Creation, it says, I am one seeing myself divided. I am two and four and eight. I am the universe in diversity. I am my transformations. This is my coming together. Here are myselves becoming one. And the first thing to understand is that this is not a material reality. It's a mathematical reality of the mind. So it's saying you're not a physical body at all, but an eternal mind. But what does the book say about life and death? The story goes that change is inevitable. So it must be that having eaten dust and rotting flesh, the snake comes to know in its own skin the secrets of change. Through the deceit of death, I grow wise in the illusions of time. I change. I grow beyond myself. 
leaving the papery sheath that once was what I was. So your body is linked to an eternal mind in this perpetually changing world. And once you die, you get born into a new body. Hence, the snake comes to know in its own skin the secrets of change. Anyways, learning and changing with the world. But what is the purpose of life? It's the return to the perfect unity, or divine mind, creating a more harmonious world. You see, we were once all connected together as one perfect mind, but now we are individualized, separated. The doors of perception open. What was hidden has been revealed. It is myself, I see and a thousand colors swirling in liquid light. I am where the sun sets below the mountains. I am in this body. I am that star, rising above clouds, hung by a thread from its ocean moon, traversing eternity, walking among gods, a shuttle, flying across the moon through the threads of time. This is all one place, one cloth. A man's life endures on earth as flowers grow and snakes crawl and wisdom lies in the palm of the hand. All that is, live within I have home, I have two, and she will be with you in this and other worlds. I am the universe too. Do you think I disguise myself as rivers and trees simply to confuse you? Whatever I am, woman, cat or lotus, the same god breathed in every body. You and I together are a single creation. Neither death, nor spine, nor fear, nor ignorance stops my love for you. Come and go in and out of heaven, through the gates of starlight, the houses of earth filling with dancing songs. The houses of heaven I come in. Truth, I sail along the river and roll back again. It is joy to breathe under the stars and to walk a thousand years until I arrive at myself. Wow, that was fascinating. A lot of similarities to New Age religion there. But let's get into the last two topics. In ancient Egypt, Magic was more than just a trick or an illusion. It was the use of the forces of natural laws, which were seen as the supernatural beings, to accomplish a certain task. A world without magic was unthinkable to the Egyptians. Magic was used to create the world, sustain it on a daily basis, heal people when they are ill, provide for them when they are in need, and ensure that they would live forever after they died. We get Werewolves, vampires, chimeras, and the dark arts, sometimes known as witchcraft, as a result. There is a legend about a cursed mummy case that may have led to many fatalities and even the Titanic sinking. The account of a man named Thomas Douglas Murray, who in 1889 was shown a mummy casket containing what was allegedly a high priestess of Amen Ra, those handling and photographing the case may have perished as a result of the case changing hands. One person who took a picture claimed to have seen vengeful eyes and was thereafter believed to have passed away. 
Of course, like with any good ghost story, there are those who claim it's not even cursed. In truth, the British Museum claimed that it had never received any reports of strange occurrences other than what overnight workers had overheard. However, it is fascinating to note that the mummy case is not on exhibition currently. One of the most fascinating gods in ancient Egypt was Osiris, also known as Usar. Osiris's lineage is unknown, but around 2400 BCE, however, Osiris was unmistakably playing two roles. He was both a fertility god and a representation of the monarch who had died and had risen from the grave. The Egyptian idea of divine kingship was then merged with this dual role. The living monarch was linked with Horus, a deity of the sky, and the deceased king's son was connected with Osiris, a god of the underworld. As the king's mother, the goddess Isis also served as Osiris' spouse and the mother of Horus. Seth was regarded as Horus's foe and the assassin of Osiris. Seth killed or drowned Osiris, then tore his body into 14 pieces and threw them over Egypt. All the pieces aside from the Polyus were eventually discovered and buried by Isis and her sister Nephis. This gave Osiris fresh life and he continued to reign and judge the underworld from that point on. His son Horus defeated Seth in battle, exacting revenge on Osiris and ascending to the throne of Egypt. But let's examine a different alternative history for this. Ancient Egyptian civilizations held vampires in great regard, and many of them rose to the position of power. Pure-blooded ancient vampires were a fearsome and powerful breed that were revered as gods at the time. Osiris was one of the most admired vampires of this time. He was the founder of the Serpents of the Light vampire bloodline. Being born a vampire, his parents abandoned him and his brother Seth. A family who engaged in the dark arts raised Seth and Osiris. The two brothers received excellent training in the arts from the surrogate parents and their daughters, Isis and Nephis. Osiris would marry Isis and ascend to the throne. He would impart agricultural wisdom to his people using both his power as a vampire and his understanding of the arts. Seth developed resentment towards Osiris as Egypt's wealth and population continued to increase. Seth fed off of people as he stroked his fury and grew an army of henchmen to aid him in overthrowing Osiris so that he could ascend to the throne. When the time came, Seth and his kids killed Osiris, and Seth then declared himself to be the pharaoh. After his death, his power was divided into 14 pieces and dispersed over the globe. Ra, a potent sorcerer at the period, was linked to Horus, the son of Isis and Osiris. Horus was furious with his uncle's behavior and rushed to the sorcerer to have him curse Seth and his children, preventing them from ever sitting foot inside for fear of being destroyed. Isis had been frantically looking for a way to bring Osiris back from the dead while she was grieving. 
She succeeded in retrieving Osiris from the underworld after turning to the Book of the Dead. But she was unable to loosen the bonds because he was now inherently linked to the underworld of the dead. According to the legend, Osiris obtained the title Lord of the Underworld, subsequently becoming known as Hades as well at this point. Due to Osiris' connections to the afterlife, his bloodline would have access to information and skills that are not available to humans. It is believed that this is the time when the vampire race first developed the inherited features of psychic and telekinetic abilities. But ancient Egypt was filled with many gods that could be interpreted as being vampires. One of them is Sekhmet, the goddess of war and the slayer of Ra's adversaries. Sekhmet was revered by so many ancient Egyptians that her religion migrated with Egypt's capital city whenever it changed places. In the name of Sekhmet, the city would build a sizable temple where many festivals, ceremonies, and daily sacrifices would be performed in her honor. It was reported that the city had thousands of statues built in her honor including more than 700 at one funeral chapel. According to texts discovered in the tomb of Seti, an old myth describes how Ra's rule over Earth came to an end. Sekhmed is sent by Ra to destroy all who had plotted against him. And according to tradition, Sekhmed's desire for blood was not quenched by the conclusion of the conflict and she was driven to come dangerously close to wiping out the human race. Ra had the essential motivation to put an end to the danger because he was aware of her fabled desire for blood. Ra deceived Sekhmed by coloring 7,000 jars of beer, blood red using red ochre. Sekhmed was then forced to consume a massive amount of beer. She ultimately ceased fighting as the beer's euphoric effects set in. Ra then referred to her as the one who comes in peace, and created the holiday, the festival of intoxication, in her honor. Sekhmed would now be referred to as the ruler of the underworld and the guardian of the undead. The living and the dead competed for her love, and for the honor of being initiated at her temple. Candidates underwent harsh testing. They had to go through the death ritual and battle the demons that awaited them in the underworld. If they survived, those who failed to conquer their anxieties were disqualified. Those who succeeded went on to become Sekhmet's priests and priestesses, who were regarded as being very formidable. The clergy of Sekhmed were renowned for possessing extraordinary abilities as both healers and practitioners of the dark arts, being able to control and exterminate demons. One set of Egyptian demons served Sekhmed, and the other group belonged to the underworld. The demons of Sekhmed were sent out to avenge the wrongdoers. They would bring diseases, anarchy, and pestilence, with them as a kind of justice. Sekhmed in the modern world is both fascinating and terrible. 
even though Sekhmet's violent tactics may never be fully understood, the vampire mythology may have been inspired by her gory tales. And then there is Shezmu, who is terrifying from what little we know about him. He was regarded as a blood god who could kill and mutilate other gods. He would shatter his enemies' heads, pour the blood into a gauntlet, and then consume it once he destroyed them. It is conceivable that crimson wine served as a representation of blood in ancient Egyptian religious offerings, which would account for the connections between Shesmu and both blood and wine. And that will conclude today's episode. Tune in next week to hear Conrad's findings of ancient Egypt. If you want to email me or Conrad, you can do so at bizarreconspiracies at gmail.com. That's all one word, bizarreconspiracies at gmail.com. And if you were wondering, God, he sounds weird. Well, I'm sick. <laughs> I've been sick for two weeks and I, I still haven't been over it. Um, some kind of cold or flu or something. But anyways, thank you for listening. And as always, I will catch you in the next episode.